Amen. If you will, open your Bibles once again to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10. We're going to look at the entirety of, uh, of that chapter today. We're moving uh, quite quickly through, that, uh, through the book. And so we're going to tackle all of uh, those verses in chapter 10. So again, Acts chapter 10, uh, we'll begin reading in, in just a moment in verse 1. I have mentioned and, and, and emphasized on a, a number of occasions as we have been in this uh, somewhat middle section. It's not exactly the middle of the book of Acts, but uh, really beginning in chapters 6 and 7 and, and running through the end of chapter 12, uh, we see uh, transition taking place. A number of things are going to happen. The apostles, uh, particularly those uh, original 12 with Peter at their uh, head, is going to, uh, to move out of focus as the apostle Paul is going to step into the forefront in the uh, final chapters of uh, the book of Acts. And uh, God is going to do and is doing remarkable things uh, in, the, in the life of his church. And uh, so we see uh, how God is uh, uh, shaping and shaping, in a sense, foundationally uh, for the purpose of the trajectory of the church as it moves from Jerusalem uh, into Judea, then Samaria, and then all the way uh, into the furthest uh, reaches of, uh, of the world. And so that all really begins uh, even under the leadership of the Apostle Peter uh, as the church uh, started uh, and started to grow there in uh, Jerusalem. So uh, we're going to talk considerably about uh, uh, the issues of transition, the issues of, of transformation, and uh, how uh, God definitively uh, in... Uh, somewhat parallel incidents with two different individuals, two very different individuals. Uh, he gives uh, this dramatic and in previous decades uh, really an unimaginable uh, vision uh, that is indicative of what God is going to do, what God's plan is uh, for the spread of the gospel uh, for uh, the growth of the church. So read with me, uh, beginning here in uh, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a, a devout man who feared God with all his household and gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision uh, an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter uh, went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and 
wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a, a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, uh, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guest. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. And as he taught with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful, how, how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But... God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection, and I asked then why you sent for me. Cornelius said, four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the sixth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. And so I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Uh, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. 
And he commanded us to preach to people, to the people, and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized. In the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. Pray with me. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. And our confession is, even with your word, even though it is powerful, it is sharper than a two-edged sword, it will not return void. And it must be proclaimed, whether in season or out of season, we confess we're dependent upon you. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would take uh, that which has been read and that which will be said and you would use it in the lives of those who hear. If there is one here today and they are unbelieving, I pray that you would so work in them that you would cause them uh, to believe your gospel and to be saved. And Lord, for those of us that know you, that you would illuminate our minds and God, that you would uh, encourage us and you would conform us according to to the character of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And again, it would be to you that we would give all of the glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I have mentioned on a number of occasions the uh, Reformation uh, motto, uh, Semper Reformda, always reforming. That is that uh, the church is always in need of, of, of growth, of change, of, of transition. The individual believer is always in that process that we often refer to as sanctification, maturing in the Lord, growing uh, in grace. But one of the things that I believe that we're going to have to guard about and already are having to guard against as we see what God did in the early church and through these apostles as attitudes were changed from the uh, separatism uh, that uh, was the norm for Judaism toward the inclusiveness that would include the Gentiles, that would uh, embrace all races, that we're going to be asked as the church, well, why not remove any and all barriers, all gender distinctions, all types of other distinctions, all things that we would categorize as sin. Why not drop all of those barriers? And as always, the church is going to have to be incredibly knowledgeable for the sake of discernment, of holding to that which must be held to, and of course, changing that which must be changed. And so we're going to see here a definitive change, a declarative change, and in one sense it was a once and for all change, except for the fact it wasn't, in that we come back to the same issues in chapter 11 and chapter 15. So God makes it clear, and y'all are looking at me incredibly spiritual today, like every time God has spoken, you're right on top of it, quick to obey. But again, what we know to be true and what we embrace and pursue and perfect in our life is what? A far different matter, isn't it? And so we, we will see the church struggle with that that they know 
uh, to be true. They move, they move quickly, and then yet again, they move slowly as old attitudes change. And so let's look, beginning here in chapter 1, this man identified for us, the man named Cornelius, uh, there in the city of Caesarea, that seaport city uh, on the western coast of, of, of Israel, uh, there on the Mediterranean See, not the Caesarea Philippi where Peter made his uh, great confession. That would be north and east of this particular city, but a, a city uh, that had uh, strategic importance, a city that was a transportation hub. Uh, it not only was a port city, but it existed on the transportation route uh, from Asia Minor, from Europe down into Egypt. So it was a, a significant city and predominantly uh, a Gentile city. We're told this man was a centurion. And one of the things I think that's ironic and maybe even incongruous as a part of the New Testament is that it is not unusual for centurions to be mentioned and to be seen in, in, in really a positive light. If you'll remember in Matthew chapter 8, there's a centurion at Capernaum that Jesus commends uh, for, for his faith, his, his understanding of the, the person and the work of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here is a representative of the regime uh, that has occupied and oppressed uh, the nation of Israel uh, that is going to be embraced by uh, by the church, and so again, it's a really a very pointed symbol uh, that that God is is ready and willing to receive all who uh, repent and and come uh, to to Him. And so, this man is uh, in charge of uh, about a hundred men. And uh, he, that that uh, hundred men is a part of what's called the Italian cohort, cohort, which is about six hundred men, uh, which was a part of a legion, which was about six thousand men. So he some some people say that he kind of parallel to our non commissioned officers, a, a sergeant. Others say more like a captain. Uh, I don't know my military rankings all that well, but he was something of an officer uh, that understood uh, what it was, as mentioned in Matthew, how to discharge, to give orders, and how to live under authority. So he was under authority, and he was a man in authority. And he was there uh, within uh, that city. And he is described as a devout man, there in verse 2, who feared God, uh, had impressed that, that fear, that knowledge upon his household, and he gave alms to the people. In other words, he was kind uh, to those uh, who lived around him. And he prayed occasionally when he had time. If, if, his, if his schedule was not too crowded, he prayed. Right? He prayed continually. He prayed continually. Now, we understand uh, that, that the implications are certainly he had regular occasions to prayer. We see that within the text. And that he was always in an attitude of prayer. And so uh, we are reminded, and I, I was deeply convicted uh, this past week. One of our young men sent me a text and noted again last week how those miracles were 
intrinsically and essentially associated with what? With prayer. And I didn't make much mention of it. And then this young man said, and we need to pray. Now, I am, I'm guilty of this. God, here's what I'm going to do. Now, bless it. Don't look at me spiritual. Because I know you. Okay? But how we need to continually be in prayer. Now, I will tell you this, and I need to practice it more. One thing I can't do is change you. I really can't. And, and, and wives, just so you know, you can't change your husbands. Just, just telling you that, okay? And vice versa. And how we need to pray. We need to pray about everything. We need to pray about anything. And, and certainly, the church, whether it's North Clay Baptist Church or, or, or the, the universal church, will, will go as far as the saints or praying, petitioning, interceding, confessing. As I said to a young man this morning, uh, I pray a lot for me. You know why? Because I know me. I know the weaknesses that I have, the, the frailties, the, the failures. And so we, we pray not obsessively and not exclusively for ourselves, but we intercede. And so this man was a man of prayer who was given to a regular time of prayer about 3 p.m. And in that prayer time, he has a, a, a vision. Uh, and it's a vision of an angel. Now, I can't not say these things because if I probably came to some of your houses, I would see some things that I need to throw in the trash. Right? You know what I'm going to say. I know you women... Got these goofy-looking cherubs, hatting, little pudgy, little effeminate-looking things. Well, they don't scare nobody. Whatever Cornelius, the seasoned veteran of warfare, saw, it frightened that hardened man. You know, and it just kind of reminds you of the seriousness and sobriety of the message, does it not? You know, that, that, that I come with a serious message from Almighty God. And he is told that his prayers and his alms have ascended. And now, here's what you're going to do. And he's given uh, specific uh, instructions uh, to send for the apostle uh, Peter. There, as we left him last week, if you'll remember... He's at Simon the Tanner's house, which is kind of an unusual place for a Jew to be uh, because tanners deal with what? Dead animals, which makes them ceremonially, ritually unclean. But so uh, barriers are already uh, being uh, lowered. And so Cornelius uh, does that which he is commanded to do, uh, namely uh, send uh, for the apostle Peter. I'm going to come back to an issue there, but I'm going to leave it kind of untied for right now. Let's look at the second thing. And while God is at work in Cornelius, he's also going to do what? He's going to be at work in the apostle Peter. And he's going to have uh, this uh, vision uh, there uh, at the sixth hour, about, about noon time, um, uh, he's going to have this vision that's going to prepare him for what he is about to do. Now notice 
what he's doing. He, he went to a, a separate place uh, up on the, the roof of the house, which again, uh, probably a flat roof house, may, maybe some type of what we might call a patio or something there on, on top where he could go uh, to be alone, uh, to go uh, to the Lord uh, in prayer, uh, having no idea of what was about to unfold uh, in, in his life. And so once again, uh, Cornelius is praying, and now Peter is going uh, to pray, and God is going to prepare them for what is a seismic shift in the attitude and in the practices of, uh, of the church, that, that these uh, good and faithful and loyal Jews who had for centuries uh, disdained and, and, and felt, uh, uh, again, as though they were commanded by God to, to have nothing to do with the Gentile world are now going to enter in the closest bonds of fellowship with these very same Gentiles on the basis of what's going to be revealed in this vision. And so Peter has this vision. It's described as a vision involving a great sheet that's coming down from the heavens, and uh, in it is going to be animals and reptiles and, and birds of the air. And uh, Peter's going to receive uh, particular, peculiar instructions uh, that he is to kill and eat of those animals uh, that are there uh, contained uh, within that sheet. I want, I want you to do one thing, because I found this pretty interesting. Go back to the, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, if you will, for just one moment. And remember, I think the traditional view of the Gospel of Mark is that Mark is kind of Peter's story, that, that he's giving it uh, to, to Mark, okay, and that Mark uh, uh, writes it down. And, and so uh, in Mark chapter 7, uh, we see really a bit of a, of, of a foreshadowing. Jesus himself is uh, addressing uh, the Pharisees, he's criticizing them for their religious uh, superficiality, their hypocrisy. In chapter 7, verse 14, And he called to the people, Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of the person are what defile him. In other words, it's not what you eat or drink, but it's actually what you say. It's that what you do. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Notice in my Bible, set off in parentheses, what that, what that means is probably either Mark or Peter added kind of an editorial comment. The comment, Thus he declared all foods clean. Now, years before the, the great vision, now, did, did Peter or the other apostles understand what the implications were of what Jesus was saying? No, they, they didn't. But looking back with the fullness of the Holy Spirit working in their hearts and minds, they go, wait a minute. Jesus told us. He told us when he was here what, what the deal was and what it was going to be. Now, we are probably... Uh, very un unfamiliar with, with Jewish dietary laws, the Old Testament regulations uh, regarding uh, 
uh, what could be eaten and, and what wasn't. We're, you know, we're Southerners. We will fry anything and eat it, right? I mean, if it's fried, you know, it's down, okay? That, doesn't matter what it is. Oh, you, yeah, that's great, okay? <laughs> but, uh, but the Bible, under the Old Covenant, prescribed certain types of restrictions. I'm going to loosely kind of summarize them, and you can go back and study them, Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14, good places to go. But the, that edible land animals must have split hooves and chew the cud. That is, they're, they're grass eaters. That seafood must have fins and scales. No shellfish, sorry, sorry shrimp and you know, oyster eaters, okay? Uh, no birds of prey. You couldn't eat meat and consume dairy products in the same meal. Again, don't, don't boil uh, uh, the calf in the mother's milk. And the blood must be drained from a carcass, and the meat must be cooked until there is no blood. And we're going to find that particular issue come back up in chapter 15. I'll just leave it alone for right now. But that, that just is a very brief, very loose, very general summary of what uh, could be eaten and what shouldn't be eaten. And we ask the question, well, why? I mean, they couldn't eat shrimp? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, well, they couldn't eat, you know, no barbecue ribs. I mean, uh, the, the preacher's pit out here would go out, go out of business. We, we couldn't do those wonderful uh, smork, smoked uh, pork butts. I mean, uh, it'd be tragic. But God, in his wisdom, and, and if you go back and look at, at the, the law, uh, these ceremonial uh, provisions, you find provisions for public health and sanitation that really make really good sense, okay? And, and probably there, there's a great deal of, of good, good wisdom in the don't eat portions, okay? And so there's partly that, but more importantly, it was some, some safeguards, some fences put up uh, kind of surrounding God's people because you're not going to enter fellowship with the pagan world. I think that was more than just health or, or anything else. But, but these are things that are going to constantly remind you that you are uniquely my people. It's just an object lesson that you're not of the common people of the world. You're a peculiar people that I have chosen through the loins of Abraham and I have saved out of Egypt and you are mine. And I will define how it is you live even to what you eat. So issues of, of separation, uh, of holiness, of being uh, set apart uh, to be uh, used uh, by God for the sake of the truth regarding the God of Israel uh, to go into the entirety of uh, the world. So he's given instructions uh, about uh, the eating of, of those animals, and of course it's repeated three times. I don't know if it's... Uh, just an emphasis, you know, Peter, you're a hardhead, so I can't tell you once. I've got to tell you three times. Uh, maybe it goes back to the denial. Maybe it goes back to the restoration. Three times. Three times. Not sure exactly why, but at any rate, uh, he is well instructed uh, on uh, this issue. And he is, he is told uh, that, uh, uh, that the men then that are sent by uh, Cornelius are coming uh, to the house. They begin uh, asking uh, about Peter, and he is told to, to go down 
and you're to go, you're to comply with their request. And notice there in verse 23, something a good Jew wouldn't do. Look at verse 23. So he invited them in to be his guest. So he's, he's, he's getting the gist of this thing. These, these Gentiles sent from a Gentile are actually invited in, uh, presumably to, to share a home and to share in the table fellowship that would have gone on uh, in, uh, in that uh, evening. And so God has prepared Cornelius, God has prepared Peter, and he is ready uh, to go with them uh, to uh, Caesarea. And so uh, he's going to accompany uh, them and uh, he, he meets with them, he discusses the whole issue, they tell him uh, what they want with them, and he goes with them, and he finally uh, meets the uh, centurion, whose name is uh, Cornelius. And when uh, Peter meets Cornelius, notice verse 25. This man, hardened battle veteran that he was, was humbled enough to cast himself inappropriately, but again, in some sense, it's just a sign of, of the respect that he has for Peter. He falls at his feet, and Peter uh, corrects them. And then in verse 28, and this, I think this could be easily misunderstood. Peter says, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Now, is he just rubbing salt in their wound? Listen, you know that I'm of a, a superior group of people. I'm, I'm a Jew, and by, by nature of uh, being a Jew, I'm superior. I, I think, no, he's, I think he's just saying now, uh, you understand that we're about to do something great, something that's been deeply ingrained in me, something uh, that's even uh, been given by God. Something is about uh, to change. Why? Because God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. That I should be willing uh, to accept any and all. And when these Gentiles came knocking on that door, I, I was ready uh, to comply uh, with uh, their, uh, their request. And so uh, he is going to uh, go, uh, go to them and that he is doing this in obedience to God. God has directed him. Uh, to do this. And so Peter is going to preach the gospel uh, to them. There in verse 34, the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles. And notice once again, verse 34, truly I understand what? God shows no partiality. God is not a respecter of individuals, of nationalities, of social status, of, of gender, or any of these things that, that uh, maybe we count for, for something, but, but that God uh, doesn't regard those things as anything. Now, look at verse 35, because this, this could be easily misunderstood. I, I want to kind of pause and hit this for just a minute. But in every nation... Anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. So, anyone who tries really hard and they start behaving and they break their bad habits and maybe they pick up some better habits can be saved. Is that the way we read this? No, that's not, 
That, 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 that is not the, the implications. In other words, it's, it's a, it's a, that's an easy place, like a lot of places in the Bible, that you can go off the rails. That, 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 uh, that a man can do something to better himself in terms of status and acceptability before God. Okay? Now, let's go back to Cornelius for just, just a moment. Like, just hold that in your mind. Cornelius was a God-fearer. He was not a full proselyte, seemingly. That means he was not circumcised. He was not received as a full participant under the, the Old Covenant. But he had just come to uh, believe in the God of Israel and, and respect Him and believe that that was the uh, one true God, probably abandoning, assume, assuming that he had abandoned the, the old gods, the old pagan uh, gods. And so did what he was doing praying, giving alms, uh, to whatever degree he could participate in the uh, religious practice of the synagogue, did that earn him some type of favor with God? It's an interesting thing. Think about Paul's conversion. There was a sense to where his religious practice was actually a hindrance to his coming to Christ. Because as to legalistic righteousness, Paul was what? Faultless. And as long as you have that attitude, as long as you think of yourself as faultless before God, you're in actuality guilty before God, and you're not saved. And so there's, it's kind of a, a double-edged sword. There, there's a way in which a person's good moral behavior or his spirituality, even in some sense, sometimes biblical knowledge, can be a, a bit of a hindrance, okay, if, if they get it all distorted and twisted and perverted in their mind, that it can, I'm a good person. No, you're not. You're a depraved person. You're a sinner, and you're in need of a Savior. And so Paul understood that as a hindrance. But there's also a sense where what we might call radical manifestations of depravity, uh, uh, different types of immorality, different types of substance abuse, all kinds of things that, that can get a person so caught up deep within a sinful lifestyle that it is difficult for them to come out of that association. Now, to be sure, most of the Gentiles that were saved were saved out of a debauched life, okay, With, without really the kind of precursor we see in Cornelius. So, we can't say uh, one way or the other that certain types of religiosity, spirituality, even some semblance of biblical knowledge can actually be a hindrance, or sometimes it may clear the way. It depends on how God chooses to use that information, whether He chooses to use it to give a certain knowledge, a true knowledge, an accurate knowledge of the need of a Savior and actually reveal the Savior savingly to that individual, or whether God does what? Allow them to persist in their misunderstanding and in their darkness. And so, God is not a respecter of persons. He, he is impartial. We see this uh, pressed out uh, in, in Paul's theology. Uh, as he uh, details the, what we would call the doctrine of election uh, in Romans 9, 10, and 11, that Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. He didn't respect the firstborn over the secondborn. Uh, he chose uh, Jacob. 
rejected Esau. So we see that as a principle uh, in Scripture. And so after making these kind of introductory comments, Peter begins to do what? Verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Now we need to understand in this sermon that we have, it is a selection. It is, it is not the entirety of all that Peter said to them on that occasion. Uh, I would think that probably all of the sermons that we have recorded in Scripture are most likely portions, edited versions, selected, highlights, okay? And so uh, he doesn't say everything that could be said about the gospel. But again, he begins with this business of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus is exclusively the Lord of all, and He is the Savior of all who come to Him. And so He bears witness to the Lordship of Christ, to the deity of Christ, and He is going to explain to him uh, that He came into uh, the world. He began His ministry there uh, in the regions of of Galilee. He came on the heels of of John uh, the Baptist, that He went about and demonstrated uh, his authority and his power over evil, over sicknesses. And verse uh, 39, he identifies himself as one of the witnesses to all that Jesus said and did. And then there in verse 39, the second sentence, and they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Okay, what he said prior to that, Jesus was a great prophet, he was a good man, he was a great teacher, he did good things, he did things that no other man had done. But his ultimate purpose was to be condemned and to die on the cross in atonement for our sins. Notice verse 40. How many times have I called your attention to that one three-letter word that begins the sentence or begins the clause there? Verse 40, but God. Evil men put Jesus to death as a part, as we remember from Acts chapter 2, according to the set purpose and the foreknowledge of God, that God's plan was to send Jesus into the world. He would become God incarnate, the God-man. He would do all of these things. He would prove beyond a shadow of a doubt exactly who he was, who, who had sent him, and evil men would murder him, and God would triumph through him by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. And Peter was privileged uh, to be a witness to that resurrection, and his charge was to proclaim the truth of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, inclusive of that message of him being raised from the dead. They spent time with him, they ate and drank with him, and there could be no doubt that this Jesus who had walked with them on earth had been raised from the dead. He is commanded, verse 42, that we preach, that we testify that all Jesus, all that Jesus has done, and warn, notice there again, verse 42, the end of it, the judge of the living and the dead. He has commanded us to give testimony to that. He has commanded us to call upon people to believe, hear, to receive. Now let me say this. Throughout the New Testament, when we find gospel appeals, 
Sometimes we, we see repent and believe. Sometimes we see repent. Sometimes we say repent and be baptized. Sometimes we see believe. Sometimes we see have faith. Sometimes we see you must be born again. There are a number of ways that the communication of that which meant to be how the, what the response must be is communicated. We must see them all together, right? That, yes, indeed, we must receive the Lord Jesus Christ. We must believe that He is uniquely the, the Son of God that has come into the world and done everything that God demands of us for our salvation. And we receive Him as Lord of all. That's what Peter said there, that He is Lord of all. That's the way we receive Him. We don't receive Him as what we think Him to be, what we would like Him to be. We receive Him as He is. And so uh, this language we need to understand uh, is it, kind of flexible, but it, it, it assumes if, if they say uh, believe, the assumption is repentance, the assumption is regeneration, the assumption is conversion. All of these things are referring to the, the phenomenon of being saved and having your sins forgiven. Okay, And so Peter summarizes there, that this Jesus is the one, everything about the Old Covenant, the prophets, the law, everything that God had previously given, He's the one that was anticipated in everything that was said and done. And it's on the basis of what He has said and on the basis of what He's done that these distinctives are being removed. And so, having said all of those things, verse 44 the confirming seal of the Holy Spirit. Now, we've talked about this transitional time in the book of Acts. The apostles come, lay hands on the Samaritans, they receive the Holy Spirit. Here, they are converted, and the Holy Spirit falls on them, and they speak in tongues like what happened at Pentecost, and it is what? It is a statement that assures Peter, that he has understood uh, this message that these prohibitions, the, these, these things that separated them have been removed, that the church is to be inclusive of all people, groups, and they are going to be received on an equal basis, that is, that they are going to receive the same Holy Spirit. They're going to receive not the seal of physical circumcision, but the seal that is actually effective, it's vital, it's living, it's powerful, the seal of the Holy Spirit that confirms that they are genuinely members, participants in this thing that we call the New Covenant. And so they respond authoritatively as apostles. They do what? Inwardly the Spirit has come. The Spirit has worked. There's been a visible sign on their part. And the church says, and now we receive you fully, without any reservations, as members of this New Covenant body. They did what? They baptized him. That external sign of this invisible, inward reality of our conversion. And so what we see and what, what the church is going to struggle through as we work our way through Acts is what all the implications are. But to be sure, they understood and we understood that this is the fulfilling of the promise made to Abraham recorded all the way back in Genesis 12-3. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
That, that through Abraham, there's going to come one who will do what? Not just bless his physical descendants, but bless the entire world through his son, through his son, Jesus Christ. Ultimately fulfilled as recorded in Revelation 21. John wrote, I saw no temple on the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God gives it its light. Its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory to it. And in its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. God's plan is what? That people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will come to saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God dropped the barriers. Paul explains it in Ephesians chapter 2. This dividing wall had been dropped between Jew and Gentile. They were now to be included in the church. And these old, I wish we had time, we'll, we'll come back to it because we're going to come back to these issues again. Has the moral law now been dropped? It has no meaning for the church. The answer will be no. Okay, the moral law is still in place. But these ceremonial laws that have to do with diet and other types of distinctions, what? They have been perfected, they have been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are not a part of what we are to live under with respect to. And so God has made through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ one body, namely the church, fulfilling uh, this promise made long before Jesus Christ walked the streets of Palestine, a promise that through the descendant of Abraham, even what? The seed of the woman shall all the nations of the church, of the world, be included in the blessing of the accomplishment of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your grace. For the truth, the power of your gospel, uh, for its invitation to us to repent, to believe, for its promise to us of the very power of God, uh, the very person of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us and uh, compelling us and comforting us and uh, giving us understanding as to how uh, we are to live, how, what we are to say. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would truly work deeply and powerfully among us and work through us uh, for the sake of your church and for our own good and for the testimony and the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen.